Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah, chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, it's true that we say it's well with our soul, but that doesn't mean that our hearts are not heavy when difficulties come, and, and truly our hearts are heavy for those who are burdened, hurting, have experienced loss of life, who have loved ones injured, a nation at unrest, difficulties and trials right in our face every day, personal dilemmas, social ills, financial woes, health trials, Sometimes it feels that we are inundated with trouble. But we are thankful that we have one who controls all things. We know him. We know you. You are reigning supremely, and you will reign. Thank you that we have confidence and can have confidence in you. Help us this morning that we would grow in our understanding of you, our appreciation of you, our trust of you. We pray for those who may be in other circumstances than this, that through these difficulties you may turn their eyes to yourself, that they would find real joy and peace in believing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This world, again and again, provides us with tragic and sad illustrations of man's wickedness. 129 confirmed dead, 352 injured in Paris, France. As we observe this devastation... Yet another public display, another public attack upon society. We should also at the same time recognize the countless evils and abuses that take place every day out of the public limelight. There are just as many every day that are abused, tortured, and even killed, that the world is not mourning for. This just happens to be right in our face. These events remind us that this is not our best life. This is not our best life. We should note, better days are coming. In 1973, there was a song released by Jimmy Cliff with that title, Better Days Are Coming. And here's what it says. Better days are coming by and by. Don't you get downhearted. Don't you cry. Troubles will be over. All our joys come over. Better days are coming by and by. Of course, as you read the rest of the lyrics of the song, you understand that his idea of better days might be slightly different than our idea of better days. The last verse he writes goes like this. Things get rough, your friends get few. Don't you cry, don't you cry. Change your flock, we'll come for you. We'll get high, we'll get high. Yeah. Maybe my interpretive skills might be a little bit off, but I'm thinking that that's a reference to drugs, <laughs> like getting high. I'm pretty sure that's what he's getting at there. So let me, let me just say this about that. Let me say this about that. Better days are coming. I don't think it's better days just because your perception of them changes. That's what alcohol and drugs does, right? It it changes your perception. You know, what was heavy and really depressing, and then, you know, we take some kind of an accelerant of some sort, and then, hey, everything's fine. All's great, man. Scroovy, even. But it... That doesn't really mean that it's a better day, does it? 
because if everything's just the same, it's really just the same day on high. We have something altogether different here in Micah chapter 4, something much better. When we look at the Scriptures and what the Scriptures say about better days, we're not talking about deluding ourselves into thinking things are better. We're talking about better. In fact, what God offers is better and best. Take a look, please, with me at Micah chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Micah 4, beginning in verse 6, God's Word says this, In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field. And to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, let her be defiled, and let her eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze, you shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. What we note here is he's transitioned. Now, you'll remember there are three parts in the, in the book of Micah. Chapters 1 and 2 is one major oracle. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, another major oracle. Then chapter 6 and 7, another major oracle. But each of these oracles is broken down into little oracles. In chapter 3, we have an oracle of judgment. In chapter 4, we have multiple oracles. Uh, the, the first five verses, this, this bright, shining ray of hope. Because the king would come. And, and he would reign among the people. Forever and ever. This is good. This is glorious. And then he, he continues that with kind of a, a hope slash in verses 6, 7, and 8 in this oracle where he says, here's what's going to happen. It's like there's hope here, but there's a feeling. At least if you're reading this and you, if this, you thought this is about me, there's a feeling in verses 6, 7, and 8 that's kind of uncomfortable, even though it ends very happily. Then as you get to verses 9 and 10, unsettling with, again, a ray of hope at the end of it. A small, minor oracle, but but it goes from judgment and discomfort to ultimately this happy experience. We have this redemption at the end of verse 10. Then verses 11 and 12, there's, again, unsettling. And verse 13 Hope. And this is just the pattern he takes over and over. This, this, there's something not right to there's something happening. And if we were reading this and trying to understand it in our day, what we note is this. Things will get worse before they get better. Things will get worse before they get better. Friends, that, that's, that's the way it was to be seen in Micah's day. They were, well, at the time of this writing, they knew what had happened in the northern tribes. They had already been taken by the Assyrians. You don't want to be taken by people 
that want to take advantage of you. Many of those that were taken, things went very poorly for. And then the Assyrians are on their doorstep. So there's unsettledness. And then there's this communication about a bright future. But it's in that day. It's like hope down there. It's not rescue now. So we have to read this and try to gather this. The same truth uh, that the readers of Micah's letter and the, the listeners of Micah's preaching would have had is the same idea that we need to have right now because that pattern holds true in every generation. Take a look, please, with me. Hold your hand here. We're going to come back. But take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So this getting worse before it gets better concept is true in Micah's day, and it's true in ours as well. We see here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul is writing and he's telling Timothy, listen, things don't get better in humanity. Humanity doesn't get better, even, even Christianized ones. Mankind as a whole plummets negatively. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Look down at verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, what does it say? Suffer persecution. But evil men... And impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The concept in the King James Version it uses the term wax. <laughs> what do you mean wax? It has the idea of, of taking wax and, and beating it and it's spreading out. It grows worse and worse. And I'd say even it might even grow deeper and deeper. This is, this is the pattern. Before it gets better, It'll get worse. We see it day in and day out, don't we? Now, psychologists want to tell you there's a spark of divinity in everyone. That's kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? Men left unchecked, it doesn't go well. We feed ourselves what we think is best and Truth be told, if all restraints were moved, were removed, and there was no, no public spectacle and no spirit of God, we would do the worst of things. Before it gets better, it gets worse. Back in Micah chapter 4, this is what he's telling us. Now, he doesn't say it with that, in that way. But this has been the way it's been from the beginning. As a, as a way to get a hold of our understanding of this passage. I want to just recap to you a survey of the cycles of trouble in Israel's history. Not every cycle of trouble, but just I, I just want to remind you of a few because it's important for us to understand what's happening in Micah. It's, it's like, well, things are on the verge of better, but no, they go back into the depths again. And, and there's a redemption, but back into the depths again. What's going on? Let's look at a couple of concepts here. First of all, the first cycle of trouble I will remind you of. Before Israel was even a nation, God told Abraham something in Genesis 15. You want to take a look there, please, with me? Genesis 15. Before Israel had even become a nation, as God is promising to Abraham this seed that would come after him, 
in verse 13 of Genesis 15, the Bible says this. God is the speaker. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them. And they, the the people that are in the land, they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nations whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now there's a lot there. Let's just look at a couple of things. First of all, God didn't give Israel the promised land right then and there because the people of the the Amorites had not reached the cap of their sin. God has long-suffering to believers and unbelievers. There comes a point where God doesn't run out of long-suffering, but He says, you've reached the limit of this and now there is a needed recompense to your actions. And God doesn't do that, doesn't bring forth that judgment until they get to that place. And so God's plan of bringing His people into the land of promise was held off for 400 years plus, 400 plus years, because the the sins of the people of Ammon were not yet full. The Amorites, excuse me, were not yet full. And so God sends His people and they're wandering around and they're doing their thing. And they, they end up in Egypt because God saved His people from Famine, can't get into all the details there. But then they're in the land. And they're, they're serving Egypt. This can't be the plan. Well, well, we'll see the resolution to that in just a couple of minutes. That's just one of the cycles of trouble that God's people have been through. As you fast forward a little bit in their history, the judges. Now, do you remember what goes on during the book of Judges? The people just turn away from the Lord, follow other gods. God sends the Philistines usually. The Philistines come in and they, they wreak havoc in God, amongst God's people. Then God sends a deliverer, a judge. And then God delivers his people. It's like over and over again. It's, it's like, same thing. Repeat button. Repeat button. Same thing over and over again. That's what we have in the book of Judges. Then we come to 722 B.C. and the Assyrians invade Israel, and then they're on the doorstep of Jerusalem. Why? Because his people were unfaithful. And then finally, we have, uh, for the sake of our discussion, that is not finally, finally, but for the sake of our reminding, the Babylonians in 586 come and capture Jerusalem. Now with that in mind, I want us to read a couple of passages in the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So take a look at 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25. This is the way it goes for God's people, Israel. They, they bring themselves to the point where they, they have no other alternatives. They've, they've come to the point of complete debauchery, following the, the gods of other nations. And then God reminds them who He is. And then He delivers. Here in 2 Kings, we're looking at the, the fall of Judah. Take a look at verses 5 and following. 2 Kings 25 and 5 and following. It says, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Listen carefully. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah. You know why they did that? The last thing you're ever going to see is us killing your sons. Kind of a bad thing to have the la- be the last vision you ever had. They bound him with bronze fetters and took him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of, the ki- of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, that guy, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. So you're just seeing just a a little bit of of the end of what was going on in Jerusalem 
and Judah as the Babylonians came in, just to kind of get a little feel for how they were treating people. Zedekiah, the king of, Israel, of Judah, had his sons killed in front of him. They took, took out his eyes, and then they brought him to Babylon. Take a look now at Second Chronicles 36. Why is this happening? Because the people just refused, refused to fulfill their part of the covenant God made them. God made with them. God fulfilled his part. He always does. And God's people, Israel, would not do what God told them to do. Beginning in verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 36, this is just the same concept in 2 Chronicles. Now, kings, kings was a, basically just a history. It was pre-exilic. This is before the exile. That's what second, First and Second Kings did. Second, first and Second Chronicles gives the history again, post-exilic, after the exile, and it was really written to try to lift the spirits of the people, to try to take their horrid history and put like a, a little bit of sunshine in it to, so that they would understand, hey, listen, there, there's a trend here. Here in Second Chronicles 36, beginning verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his neck against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So you see, it's not just king, it's king and people. In Second Kings, we're just seeing what's happening to the, to, to the king. Here we've got the king doing what he does and then the people following suit. Look a little further, beginning in verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, also the Babylonians. It's just another word for it who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak, he gave them all into his hands, or his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king of his leaders, and these he took, excuse me, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Verse 21. Why, why, why? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So we've got this, all this going on. This captivity is definitely referred to in Micah chapter 4. Probably the Assyrian captivity is, is hinted at in Micah chapter 4. How were all of these periods of time resolved? Well, let's just note a couple of things here. After servitude in Egypt, what happened? God redeemed his people, right? With a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, God redeemed His people. We call it what? The Exodus. What happens at the, the end of the Babylonian captivity? The, the, at the end of these, that captivity, the Babylonian captives were redeemed by God as He worked through the heart of an unbeliever. His name is Cyrus, who decreed the need to build a temple. It's, re, it's, it's recorded for us at the end, the very last words of Second Chronicles. Take a look at verses 22 and 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. And so God uses an unbeliever to redeem to redeem his people. Some call this the new exodus. I think that it's an appropriate title. But I believe there's still one more, at least, exodus to come when God redeems Israel. Uniting her, Israel, northern tribes, Judah, southern tribes, uniting her under one shepherd king. And we'll talk about that next week. Now as we focus our attention back on Micah chapter 4, take a look back there. As we focus our attention back on Micah chapter 4 for a few minutes, I want you to notice, listen carefully, I want you to notice who takes credit for their afflictions. Verse 6. Micah 4, 6. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those, what's it say? Whom I have afflicted. Who's taking credit for that affliction? God is. He also takes credit in Micah chapter 2 and verse 3. If you look there, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. Why did God afflict them? It's a a logical question. They continually broke the covenant that was to characterize their nation as God's people and thus God's representatives among the nations. This was their way. They constantly did the opposite of what God told them to do. And as a result, their, their light was shining much differently than the light that God intended. God had initially warned of the consequences of breaking the covenant. You can look in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. Read those passages and say, okay, this is what happens if you violate the covenant. Well, did you know that God is faithful? Of course, God is so faithful and he's merciful and kind. God's faithfulness extends to doing everything he said he would do, including when you violate my covenant, I will judge you. That's also faithfulness to do that. Parents, listen carefully. It is faithful to hold your children accountable. I'm not saying to be brutal. I'm not saying to be ridiculous. I'm not saying to be overbearing. It's faithful to hold them accountable. You say, listen, these are the things that need to happen. When these things don't happen, here are the consequences. If these things don't happen and you don't give the consequence, you know what you are? Unfaithful. You're unfaithful. God says, this is, this is the way that I've set things up. Look at what I've done for you. Look at the way that I've done these things. These, this is the way you're supposed to appear and, and act out the covenant. Because you're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. You're supposed to be a light to those around you. You're supposed to be exercising my dominion on the earth. And when they choose not to do that, God says, this is, this is the way that it will go. And So God takes credit for afflicting them. So from the perspective of Micah's day and ours, things would get worse before they got better, but better days are coming. So let's work our way through the passage. It really is only going to take us just a little bit of time to do this. In verses 6 through 8, what we want to note is hope for the future. Hope for the future. It says in verse 6, In that day, says the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation so that the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. Notice what he does. He he uses these terms, lame, outcast, and afflicted. Okay, They're, They're in parallel construction. The lame are the outcast. The outcast are the afflicted. God made them lame. God made them outcast because God afflicted them. This this people, this same group that are lame, outcast, and afflicted become something altogether different. What do they become in verse 7? I will make them a remnant. Instead 
Instead of being lame, this is my, my protected ones. And then instead of being um, outcasts, they're a, a strong nation. And instead of being afflicted, God would reign over them. The Lord would reign over them. We've got the total reversal of all these things. From, from, from lame and outcast and afflicted, now all of these same ones become something altogether different. See, God, God's redeeming them. This is the promise here. This is the hope. How long is this kingdom? It says at the end of verse 7, it's from now on and forever. Now, from Micah's perspective again, he says, in that day. In that day. He's not talking about this day. because As you get to verse number 9, it's going to say now. He's contrasting in that day and now. So when these things take place, when the lame and the outcast and the afflicted become a remnant and a strong nation and the Lord is reigning over them, when that takes place, it'll take place forever and forever. It's an eternal kingdom. The former dominion would come, but it'll be a better dominion. Look at verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Now he's talking about a region. There's there's this portion on the the Temple Mount that's called the City of David. He's making reference to it with these terminologies of the stronghold and the tower of the flock. He says, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. What shall come? Even the former dominion shall come. The kingdom of the daughter of Zion. So he's promising this kingdom, but it's going to be a more glorious kingdom because instead of the former glory, it'll have an even greater glory. Because the former glory was, was David, right? And Solomon. When, when Israel reached its, its peak of prominence back in, in those days. But the future dominion, it's not going to be limited to the Middle East. It's going to cover the entire globe. It's real, it's everlasting, it is comprehensive, it covers every nook and cranny of this globe. That's what's coming. So, so we have this hope for the future, even though first we see this lame, outcast, and afflicted. We have this hope for the future. But nextly, as we get to verses 9 and 10, I'd say we have panic for today. Panic for today. While there's hope, there's something that comes first. He says, now... Now, in verse 9, why do you cry aloud? Isn't there no counselor in your midst? Has your counselor, excuse me, no king in your midst, has your counselor perished? Let's stop right there. What's happening in their day and age? How is their kingship during those days? Good? Good godly leaders? Pointing them in the right direction. Hey, look, let's look to, to, to our future Messiah coming. Let's look to Jehovah our God. Let, let's, let's look to Him. No, no, that's not what they have as, as leaders. There's, there's really no king there. There is a king, but he's not really a king. There's no counselor going on. So the troubles of a poor leader and ultimately captivity, that's coming upon them. For birth pangs, verse 9, birth pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. So here's the panic for today. He likens the current troubles that they're going through to birth pangs of a pregnant woman. How long do the trials of pregnancy last? Anyone? (laughs) Well, they start with morning sickness and the like. And then partway through, you're like, well, I'm not like. They're like. They'd be like, <laughs> um, feeling better. I feel like I've got all the energy in the world, and the house is spotless for like from, from, from month three to month six in the pregnancy. There's like un- incredible energy and everything else that goes on with it. And then you get to month six, and it's like, ow, my back and ribs and everything else. It's just, you know, you know how this cycle goes. And then there's the actual birth pangs. Well, what's that? Well, there's, there's the, the contractions and all that good stuff that goes with it. Now, I believe, you ready for that? I believe that God intended, as part of the curse, for women to endure the pain of childbearing. So I wouldn't let my wife have any medication during that. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely only kidding. Like, 
<laughs> but just imagine, just imagine going through that without medication. Some people have because maybe it was too late or whatever the case may be, but they're probably taking some oral medication. It might not be the, the epidural that numbs it completely, but there, there's, there's some kind of medication going on during these processes because it's, it's incredible in its pain. And I think that, that's the concept he's trying to get for us here, and that is this is not going to be easy. Oh, in that day, in that day, look at how glorious it will be. But now, now it's like the pain of childbirth. Now it's like the pain of contractions without any medication. Now it's terror because you're going to be taken from this place. You're taken to a field. You're going to Babylon. And they don't like you there. They don't like you there. This is, this is bad. This is panic for today. But, even in that panic, look what he says. There, there in that day, in that place, you shall be delivered. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So, so even in the process of saying, there's, there's something to be worried about, even there, my right hand will hold you. Isn't that what he says in the Psalms? Psalm 139, that even there, my hand will hold you. I'll still take care of you. In the, in the face of that, that's when, when Jeremiah penned those glorious words, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Right in that place. As we look to the last section, the last mini-oracle or sub-oracle, trouble all around. But. Listen. Listen to what it says. Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, let her be defiled, and let her eye look upon Zion. Will you read verse 12 with me, please? I know you might have a different version than I do. Just read it. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand His counsel, for He will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. These nations have evil intentions that are all around them. But they don't realize that God will use their ill intentions to bring forth His plan. And it just reminds us of God's way. It reminds us back to Joseph's day when his brother sold him into slavery. And God kept raising Joseph up in one place to the next. Why? Because God was going to do something with him. And as, as God used Joseph through His sovereign control and provided for His brothers and sisters and, and brothers and family and, and his father and then God ultimately saved his people and his brothers come to him after his father's death and says, oh will you please forgive us? You'll remember Joseph's words where he said this, but as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save what? Many people alive. Now that would be referring to the people of Israel, but it also is referring to the people of Egypt. Because they went through a seven years of famine that they wouldn't have been prepared for. But God used Joseph. Why? Because God is sovereign. And God is faithful. These nations are rising up against Israel and they have ill intentions, but they don't understand that even their ill intentions, God has supernaturally control over that. And so what we see here is this, this statement in verse 12. They don't understand. Their thoughts aren't my thoughts. They don't understand. What their ill intentions are, God's going to turn on their head. It reminds us of some other scripture passages. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as high as the heavens are, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it reminds us of Romans chapter 11, verses 34 and following, where he says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Well, I think many have tried. Many of us have tried. God, this is what ought to happen here. I know what ought to happen here, God. This is, this is the way you should do this. God, why did you do it that way? Why is this going on? This is the way it ought to be. Many have tried to be God's counselor or who has given a gift to him. How can you give a gift to God? He owns everything. It doesn't work. 
So what God says here is they're going to they're come up against you, but the, re- the reality is, while these nations have devised evil against you, my people, God will use his people to undo their destructive plans. These evil ones will be trampled under the bronze hooves of God's people. Truly, the picture that Micah is painting here is that there's trouble on every side, but that the Lord reigns supreme. The Lord reigns supreme. Trouble, then glory. I want to talk about, just just going to head back to verses 9 and 10 for just a moment as we come to our conclusion. Verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. What is this birth thing about? Aside, you know, maybe the pains that you can understand. and You can feel something's going on a little bit beyond illustrating pain, don't you think? I think that there's something more going on. Is there anything good about birth pangs? Is there? Certainly, there's something good about birth pangs. Something's coming, in fact. Someone. Someone's coming. You're going to labor. You're going to have pain, the pain of childbirth. You're going to have the contractions and the pain that comes with all of that. But there's something coming. There's someone coming. Look at chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet... Out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time, listen, that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Really, this is a scene This pain and then childbirth. This is the scene that we're all dealing with. Anyone that has tasted salvation has first experienced the pain that led them to know the Savior. We don't come to Jesus just because it sounds like a really great story. We come to Jesus when we realize that everything else doesn't work. We come to Jesus and we realize, I just don't have any other way. I've got nothing else. I I would try a hundred different things before I would ever go to Jesus. It's not just a sweet little story that makes us, oh, that's that's great. I think I'm going to do that thing. No. No, that's pseudo-salvation. That's fake. When we come to the end of ourselves and realize that our way doesn't work, that's when we taste the salvation of the Lord. Before we break forth into rejoicing, we first recognize the peril of our condition. Before we know and trust Christ, we are recognizing that we're in a perilous condition. Truly, we're like the wording from the book of Ephesians. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Listen carefully having no hope and without God in the world. No one's born into this. We are born separate from God. We are born in sin. In sin my mother conceived me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. We're we're not born into Christianity. Before we can embrace and experience the joy that this passage is is forecasting for us, we must first recognize the peril of our condition. Paul wrote this right after Ephesians 12. Consequently, he wrote chapter 2 and verse 13. He said this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, it is Jesus who supplies hope and peace and life. Do you know him? Do you know him? You look at this passage, 
And he, and he forecasts this future glory, this future hope, this future happiness. It's all good. But right now there's pain. But it illustrates for us, friends, that that pain has a purpose. Too often we, we try to get rid of all the pain, but really the pain has a purpose. And the pain is to help us to say, hey, there's going to be something on the other side of all of this. And where am I going to look for it? I submit to you the place to look is Christ. He is the one who forecasts for us better days. Better days are coming. It's it's true for everyone that has experienced Christ. Better days are coming, but they'll not come through our deluded ideas, but through our Creator, our Sustainer, our Savior, our Judge, and the Sovereign of the Universe. Will you look for that comfort, that joy, that hope, that peace in Him? There's no other place to look. Everything else is dissatisfying. But I'll tell you, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, you won't taste for other things. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We, we see a world in turmoil. We know that while it is across the ocean, the experiences of this last week, these, these same terrors are available on every continent, in every region, in every city, in every building. We're not afraid because we know who you are. But there are people that are concerned. May we look for our security and our peace in our sovereign Savior, Jesus. I pray for anyone in here this morning that's never experienced the joy of knowing Jesus. That even this moment where they're seated, they would hunger and thirst for him and for his righteousness. And we know that if they hunger and thirst for his righteousness, if they'll call upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved, they'll have his righteousness, they will be filled, and they won't thirst for other things to fill what only he can fill. Father, do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing our last song, where is Tracy? There you are, sorry. <laughs> come, on, come on up here, sister. We're going to take Tracy into membership. Now, this is just kind of a formality, quite honestly, because Tracy's been a member before, and then uh, she, she went away and she came back, and she's been serving as a member. We've been treating her as a member, so it's just really a formality, but um, formalities must be followed, right? So we're going to welcome her back into fellowship. Not that you haven't been out of uh, fellowship, but we're, we're glad that she's uh, part of... of the, the assembly here, she's trusted Christ as her Savior. She's been baptized after that salvation, and uh, she's pleased to be among us, and we're pleased to have her. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for Tracy. Thank you for the opportunity we have to serve side by side. We ask that you'd help us to be a blessing to one another for your glory's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll sing one last song, and then after the, the conclusion of that, please come up and and welcome her in. Let's stand together, please, as we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. Saves are his. Dear.
Bless you.